going to explore this morning the glory of God. Um, 40 years this church has been going under Alan's leadership and 70 something years the glory people have been going and it was other people who called the glory people glory people wasn't it? It wasn't that you, them, you yourselves, they themselves and they saw something, didn't they? They saw something that caused them. And um, what is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? Um, I just want to explore it this morning with you through and see what the word says about it. Um, if you look in the dictionary, this is a boring bit, but I think it's quite helpful. Um, if you look in the dictionary, the word glory means great honour, praise or distinction, but it's, it's afforded by common consent. Everybody agrees that this, need, this deserves great honour or whatever. So it, that's an interesting thing that there's an agreement that this needs, you know, deserves praise or distinction. It isn't just somebody's opinion, in other words. It means adoration, praise or thanksgiving offered in worship. It means majestic beauty or splendour. It also means a height of achievement, enjoyment or prosperity. And the splendour and bliss of heaven, perfect happiness. Glory means all those things. And it's also a verb, it's also a doing word. True glory is to feel or express uplifting joy over a success or a victory. So that, that's what you'd find if you looked in, in a dictionary. The Bible dictionary is slightly different. Um, the Hebrew word for glory means weight or worth. There's a, there's a substance to it. There's a heaviness to it, you know. Um, and the most important concept where it's used in the word is for the glory of God, the revelation of God's being his nature and his presence to mankind. That's what the Hebrew means. And the Greek, in the Greek, its chief use is used to describe the revelation of the character and presence of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So there is more than one type of glory. You see, there's more, and we want to look today at the glory of God. Okay. Um, because Isaiah 42, and in chapter 48 as well, God says, I will not give my glory to another. Um, he makes that quite clear. And uh, Jesus, when he was speaking in Mark's Gospel, he says that the Son of Man will come in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. So God's glory is a specific glory. It's something of its own. Um, in Jeremiah 24, the prophet says, Let him who glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So that if you're going to glory in anything, glory in the best, and the best is that he is the Lord, that you know and understand this amazing God, that what, what he delights in 
is loving kindness first, judgment and righteousness in the earth. And the first mention of the glory of God, you'll find in Exodus 16. <clears throat> this is very interesting, I think. Um, the context is the grumbling of the people. They were bemoaning the fact that the food they had in Egypt wasn't available in the wilderness, and they were grumbling about it. And um, in chapter 16, verse 7, Moses said to them, In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your murmurings against the Lord. And it was when the Lord had said, I will rain down bread from heaven. And that's connected with, in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. And it's, as we go through, you see that when the glory of the Lord appears, it is at a significant time in the plan of redemption. God's a bit like a, a project manager. He oversees the work. He's not manifestly there all the time. But at important points of this construction, I don't know anything about project managers, but this seems to be quite a good analogy. Um, he, he comes, he's there, isn't he? He comes along and he wants to see for himself this particular bit or how it's done or whatever it is. And it's a bit like that. The glory of God will come at significant points, first of all in Israel's history, but then right through the plan of redemption. And you see the bread from heaven was a very significant thing because in the due time, Jesus would come and say, I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread of life. So this is an important point in, in um, the history of the plan of redemption using the, the children of Israel. And um, in verse 10 of chapter 16, it says, Now it came to pass... As Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. It appeared in a cloud. And then in Exodus 24, and verses 16 to 17, it speaks again of the glory, and this is in the context of the covenant being affirmed. God was making a people for himself in the, in the desert. He was making them into his people. And the covenant had been affirmed by the people. And it says, The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain, in the eyes of the children of Israel. So first we have the cloud, and then we have the cloud and we have fire. Chapter 29, verse 43. This is in the context of the tabernacle being set up, all God's instructions to Moses when he was up on that mountain about how, to, how everything should be done, all about the ordering of the priests, all about the preparation for the sacrifices to be made. 
so the people could draw near to God. And in verse 43 of chapter 29 of Exodus, it says, God is speaking and he says, There I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. His presence will sanctify that place. They have to do all that preparation, but what will do the sanctifying is his glory, his presence in that place. So God's glory covers, it cleanses, it sanctifies, and this is the glory he won't share with anyone else because only he has this glory, only he has it. It's a bit like, um, could ask you the question, what has the glory of God and Coca-Cola got in common? It's the real thing, the real thing, the real thing. Now, if you turn to Exodus 33, I just want to read this. Um, this is where Moses seeks God's glory. Exodus 33, starting at verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you've also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring us up from here, for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I, have, and I, and I know your name. And he said, Please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. Moses was asking for something before his time, ahead of his time. He found grace in God's sight, but at this point in time, he was asking for something that it was not yet the due time for. There is a promise in Psalm 84, verse 11, that says the Lord will give grace and glory. And Moses had found that grace, but it wasn't yet the time for the glory that he was seeking. Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century revivalist and theologian, marvellous man, said this. He said, grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. I think that's wonderful. I just think that's a marvellous statement. We're in there somewhere, <laughs> you know. Um, and in John 1.14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
There's the grace again. It's there. The grace is there. And this is given for a purpose, this glory and this grace. John G. Lake said something very interesting. He said, Jesus never intended Christians to be an imitation. They were to be bone of his bone and blood of his blood and flesh of his flesh and soul of his soul and spirit of his spirit. And thus he comes to us, Son of God, Saviour and Redeemer forever, and we are made one with him, both in purpose and being. That's a wonderful statement, isn't it? Uh, Just a wonderful statement. And, you know, the scriptures that he put with that um, statement are from Ephesians 5.30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. And 1 Corinthians 6 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now I want to turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. And just one verse in this um, famous chapter, isn't it? We know it very well. I just want to look at verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now in my Bible the hymn is capitalised here and this is the chapter prophesying about the Messiah. But the word for comeliness or splendour is actually the Hebrew word for glory. And I I believe that this scripture also gives a description of us without the glory of God. There's nothing. The image of God We are made in his image. And without the glory, there's not a lot left. (laughs) You know, that is is actually what we look like to God, in a way. Um, And I just think that with no covering, there's no covering, we need, we can't cover ourselves, can we? We need that covering. And God knew that. And although it says there's no beauty that we should desire him, he'd already got that plan in place to redeem us. And if we look at Luke 2, verse 9, the birth of Jesus, very significant time. And there's the glory there. Luke 2, verse 9. Well, I'll go verse 8. There were some, in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. When Jesus was born, the glory came down. And I don't know if Jesus was actually born in the night, but it was at night that the glory of God came. It came in the dark, 
and lit up. That night sky was absolutely ablaze with the glory of God at the birth of Jesus. And, and um, the, the Lord was there, just like he was in the tabernacle, just like he was on top of the mountain. This was a significant time, a significant moment, a very significant moment. But then if we go to Luke 23, when Jesus is on the cross, verses 44 and 45 of, of Luke's Gospel, it says, and it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. When Jesus died, it was in the middle of the day, but it was dark. And it looked like the glory that had come with that blaze of light at his birth had departed. But the veil was torn in the darkness. The veil was torn in the darkness. And, and we, are given, we are given a sight of what that meant right there and then. Because there was a centurion who was looking at Jesus as he died in the dark. It says in Mark 15, when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And, you know, that, that centurion, it said it, he stood opposite him. He was opposite Jesus in every way, not just physically, in every way. And the, because the veil had been torn, there was no barrier to him seeing who God was. There wasn't all this stuff in the way that there was before. And it's an amazing thing that you see instantly, immediately that veil was torn. There was a human being who was, saw the glory. He saw the glory in Jesus. He saw, just think what Jesus looked like on the outside. You know, there was nothing. He was probably not even recognisable physically. But that man saw something. He saw who he was. I don't know how he did, but he saw the glory. He saw the glory. And, and you know, there is a glory in brokenness. There is a glory in brokenness. If you've been broken, if you've, you know, life's chucked stuff at us, doesn't it? But there's a glory there. There's a very, very special glory there that can be found, that can be seen. It can be seen in you, you know. Um, it's, it's a, Jesus on the cross, you know, he, he went to the absolute depths of fallen humanity. He redeemed everything. He went right down. There's a scripture in, in Psalm 75, and it says that God has prepared this cup, and it says that the wicked are destined to drink the cup of God's wrath down to its very dregs. Well, Jesus drank that on our behalf. He drank it right down to the absolute bitter, bitter end. So he went to the absolute bottom of our depravity and our sin and our fallen nature. All that, he redeemed every last darn thing. There's nothing outside of it, you know. And, and it, it, it's just, because he did that, it, it, it's, it expresses it in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, 
to be sin for us, to be it, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And, and to me, it's summed up in, we sing that marvellous carol at Christmas. We ought to sing it all the time. Hark the herald angels sing. God and sinners reconciled. No, born to raise the sons of earth. That's where we were. He's raised us up. The earth was cursed. You know, we were children of the curse. There was nothing we could do about it. He's redeemed us from the curse. Born to raise the sons of earth. He's raised us up. Born to give them second birth. You know, just that we can be born again into this kingdom. Let's look at Ephesians 2, because this, Paul got this, and this is, this is what he's describing in Ephesians 2. We had a bit of this yesterday from, from Tony. Um, starting at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in, the, in his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love that. There are three togethers there. Three. Three togethers. Raised us up together, made us sit together. There's another one somewhere. And made us alive together. Isn't that marvellous? I love the word together because it's inclusive. Everybody's there. Everybody's in there. It, this is open to all. You know, oh, it's just, just marvellous. Absolutely marvellous. Well, in Proverbs 25, it says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search a matter out. There is progressive revelation throughout the word of God, from Genesis to Revelation. Progressively, if you read how God appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you know there's a little bit more that he reveals of himself each time as we go through. It's marvellous. Moses could only see the back of God because that was the time he was living in. That was his, his, his appointed time. But let's look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is my favourite verse in the whole Bible, I think, I think. But it's just marvellous. We'll, we'll start 2 Corinthians 4, we'll start at verse 3. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, of the glory of God, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And then verse 6 says this, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We can see God's face now. It's the most wonderful thing. You know, bless Moses. I mean, he was there at the transfiguration, wasn't he? But you know, 
we, we are given this in Jesus' face. We see the glory of God. We see the glory of God. And we, we see it personally by faith. You see, those who did not believe were veiled. But it says elsewhere, doesn't it? It says, when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. They see, they see, they see. Yeah, you know. Jesus said to Martha in John 11, he said, did I not say to you, if only you believe, you would see the glory of God? It's faith that connects us. And faith enables us to see the glory, wherever it is. You know, you think the, um, the heavens declare the glory of God. Some of these great naturalists don't believe in God. They love what God's made. Think of David Attenborough. He loves what God's made. He loves the planet. He doesn't see the creator. He doesn't see that glory. It, you know, it is available, but we, we, we see it by faith. We access it by faith, don't we? But in Isaiah 45, it says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And in the New Testament, it says, Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. But these two scriptures refer to the second coming, which will not be like the first one. Everyone will see who he is then, won't they? You know. But until that time, we see the glory of God through faith, through the eyes of faith. And the thing is, if you've got it, it's so hard to understand people who haven't. Can't you see? The answer is no, they can't. And, and you know, that's why we pray. We pray God will open their eyes to see his glory, to see who Jesus is, to see what that centurion saw in the most unlikely of situations, wasn't it? You know, and if he can see who Jesus is in the dark, when Jesus has been so battered and bruised and, and, and you know, like that by men, then anybody can see the glory of God. Anybody can. Yeah, yeah. The word glory appears 398 times in the Bible. I've heard other people say how often things, and I don't know how they do it. I counted the columns in my Strong's Concordance. So there's 398 if my sums are right. So I want to go now to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. My Bible's got a heading that says, The King of Glory and His Kingdom. <clears throat> this is a Psalm of David. And it starts off, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. 
Now, this psalm is, is a wonderful psalm because it kind of encapsulates the progressive revelation of God. It starts off with God as creator. The earth is Lord's. Then it goes on to God's establishing his righteousness, what his righteousness is. Who may ascend? Do these things. Follow the law. You know, the law shows you what sin is. The law shows you what righteousness is. You do that. Then it goes on about seeking God. Seeking God. Seeking God for yourself. For yourself. And then you get this lift up your heads, O you gates. And Matthew Henry that great commentator, applies this to the entrance of Christ into the souls of men by his word and by his spirit, that they may be his temples. Christ's presence in them is like that of the ark in the tabernacle. It sanctifies them. It sanctifies them. You know, Jesus was crowned with many crowns, but it's as the king of glory that he enters into us if we let him. It's as the king of glory. The tabernacle in the wilderness was sanctified by the glory. And our hearts are too when we let Christ in. 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31 says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God is the highest glory, far above all. And that's why he can't be shared with another. Only he is who he is. And yet, yet Jesus prays in John 17. Jesus prays. I do not pray for these alone, verse 20, but also for those who believe in me through their words, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. amazing. See, in the beginning, that's, that's taking us back to what it was like before the fall. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were clothed in glory. They were one with God. And this progressive, it isn't just progressive revelation through the word, it's also God getting closer and closer and closer to us, because he starts off on the top of a mountain. And in fact, he's a long way off in the wilderness. Then, then he's on top of the mountain. Then he comes into their man-made tabernacle, according to his instructions. And so it goes on. But by the time Jesus gets here, he's got another purpose. is to live in us. I will not leave you as orphans. He came and showed us. He said, well, if you go away, what are we going to do? I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you, my spirit. My spirit, see? And so, first of all, the first sacrifice to cover their nakedness, which they couldn't do, that was, that was the first animal that was killed, the first blood that was shed in order that man may be clothed. They tried with a few fig leaves, but it really didn't work. 
And then the promise to dwell and sanctify the tabernacle with his glory, which the law and the sacrifices couldn't do. They were a part of what man could do, but it didn't, didn't do the didn't cut it, did it? You know, <laughs> the blood of animals and goats cannot take away the, the sin of man. Up to the supreme sacrifice of Jesus, which leads to Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And the power of the cross, you see, power of the cross, that centurion saw the glory of who Jesus is. But the glory of the resurrection... Last night we were um, having a little lovely little meeting and what came to me was the description of Jesus, the risen Jesus in Revelation 1. And John, who wrote Revelation and saw these things, he was probably the, pers- the closest person to Jesus when, when he, was, he walked the earth as a man. He was the beloved disciple. He loved Jesus and was really close to him. But he fell at his feet as though dead when he saw Jesus in all his risen glory. John, who knew him, fell at his feet as though dead. We can't really comprehend the majesty of Jesus in that, in, you know, and, and the heavenly glory. That's right. Because Jesus will return in glory, which is why we can rejoice in the hope of glory. Christ is in us, the hope of glory. And Paul understood the the glory in brokenness too, because he said, affliction works for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. And suffering, our suffering is not to be compared with the glory which will be revealed. So there's a connection here. There's a connection here. In 1 Peter 4, 14, it says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. He's glorified. Because God's purpose is to bring many sons to glory, to conform us to the likeness of the Son of glory. And the sanctification work of the glory is what transforms us from within. We've had lovely testimonies, haven't we, about the change that Jesus brings in people when they see who he is. It's this glory. And there's nothing more beautiful than a saved soul. There's nothing more beautiful than someone transformed by the love of Jesus. I don't think there's anything more beautiful in all of creation than someone who's just seen the light, as we say, you know. It's absolutely beautiful. All that smears and besmirches is gone. All that spoils and mars isn't there anymore. It's, it's like it's been cleared out the way and you get this radiance of someone who's just met the risen Lord. It's just absolutely wonderful. 2 Corinthians 3.8, this is my last scripture, says, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Spirit of the Lord. So let's carry the glory that others may see him.